This is Transistor.fm. Hello and welcome to Build Your SaaS. This is the behind-the-scenes story of building a web app in 2021. Today, I'm speaking with Michelle Hansen. She is the co-founder of Geocodio, which I think is, they're doing over a million dollars in annual recurring revenue. But she's also the author of an incredible book called Deploy Empathy. I was one of the people who pre-ordered this book, and it is really good. I highly recommend it for reasons we'll get into in this chat. So, Let's just get right into it. Here is my conversation with Michelle Hansen. I've been trying to listen to um, some fairly popular personal psychology podcasts. My critique, and maybe this is just me, but my critique is the, the presentation is so dialed in. We all know that sleep is important for good mental functioning. But have you ever wondered, you know, that kind of tone... And for me personally, the, the reason I like podcasts is I like the kind of raw human connection. I like the raw feeling. I like, to, I like the, the veneer of polite society to be removed. You know, I want to hear like, what is, the, what is it really like to be human? What, what are people really struggling with? What's the real, uh, you know, what's the real essence of this? That's one reason I like you and Colleen talking so much is because it's just, it's two people talking who are fully themselves, you know? I've had people say to me how it feels like they're having a conversation where they're with their friends where they're just not talking back. Um, yeah. Like I, you know, when I, so when I was writing the book, there is this one phase where I interviewed um, over 30 people who had been reading the rough drafts in the newsletter. Mm, and yeah. one person said to me, they're like, this is so strange to talk to you because I feel like I have been talking to you every week when I walk my dog. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's yeah. sort of this, like, like I, I know the, the term parasocial is used and, and I think it kind of has a negative connotation because people use it in the context of like celebrities and, and whatnot. But like, mm-hmm. I think there is a positive connotation to that, especially with, I think COVID and and how lonely all of us are that like hearing two people talk to each other who enjoy talking to each other is just, it's just like so nice. Like I was listening to a podcast the other day between like doctors and nurse practitioners talking about what it's been like to treat patients through the pandemic. And it it was really, really heavy, but like Mm -hmm. the whole time they're also like, cracking jokes and there's like Adam Sandler references. And it was like, and it was like, these are clearly people who like, like they're people and they enjoy talking to each other and they could have taken it very seriously of like, you know, this is what it's been like to treat 62,000 COVID patients over the last year and like tell their families they're dying. But they're also like, yeah, man, like it's like, it sucks fighting with the insurance companies. And I hate having to tell the patients this and like, I hate not being able to save all of them. And like, but like they're, they're people. And, and I think when you're, you know, you're on a long drive or, you know, like you're on a run or whatever it is, like, you don't feel so alone. Like, even if it's a heavy topic, like Mm -hmm. it, it feels like you have like kind of like these like friends in your ear who are there with you. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, by the way, I think we we have we do have a latency issue, right? <laughs> There's a little bit, I think so, or at least maybe it's fixed itself. Um, yeah, this this is a a big reason I wanted to get into podcasting. I feel like podcasting changed my life in the sense that I was driving to work miserable and getting to hear these real insights uh, from people who were, you know, maybe building a business or uh, just exploring what it is to be 
human and articulating things that I'd felt, but I'd never had resonated back to me from another person. Mm. Um, that, that's been really powerful. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of my favorite parts of the medium. And it is actually what, one of the reasons I've been enjoying your book so much is, uh, I really like your, your definition of empathy. Could you give like a definition for empathy again? Like what is empathy? What's the difference between empathy and being nice? What's the empathy difference between empathy and sympathy? I have, I have definitions in my book. Um, none of them are mine. Um, so Brene Brown, who is just one of my favorite writers in general, um, and especially on empathy. Um, and, and then also Indy Young, who is a design, uh, sort of a design leader who's written a lot of books on this. Um, Indy Young says, empathy is about understanding how another person thinks and acknowledging their reasoning and emotions as valid, even if they differ from your own understanding. But then I also have Chris Voss's definition. Um, and if you've read Never Split the Difference, um, or perhaps I should say if you haven't, he's a former FBI hostage negotiator. So, okay. <laughs> you know, where you might say that, you know, some other people who write about empathy are very sort of, um, you know, sort of touchy-feely and whatnot. Like, yeah, the former FBI hostage negotiator, which like his book is like, I feel like it's like if Michael Bay wrote a business book, like it's... <laughs> full of like hostage situations and these like bank robberies and like, it's like, it's a wild ride. Anyway, you know, he is not really, uh, you know, not touchy feely, right? He is not touchy feely. And he says, the beauty of empathy is that it doesn't demand you agree with the other person's ideas. Mm. In a sense, it's basically you're acknowledging that somebody else's experiences and perspectives make sense from their perspective and you basically suspend your own perception of what that situation is to try to fully understand how things look from their perspective. I sometimes think of it as just like totally like being John Malkoviching yourself into somebody else and like, you know, sort of opening the closet that is their psyche or they're just their, you know, in this case, their experience of a particular thing, which might be as boring as sending invoices. And you just kind of get to like poke around in all the nooks and crannies and be like, oh, so like what's going on here? Okay. Okay. Now what do you think of this going on over there? Oh, and what about this other thing? And like, it doesn't really matter what you think about it. It's just like, how complete of a picture can you build of this person's experience of something? What's interesting about that, even <laughs> just as a as a social idea, especially now, but maybe always, like people are primarily interested in their own thoughts and opinions. You know, if I was going to be vulnerable, I would say there's a lot of me that wants to discount anyone who's not who doesn't seem like they're on the right track or that they've got the right ideas or why would you feel that? Because that's, um, you know, foolish or whatever. Over decades, I've, I've probably learned a little bit that empathy is important, but what, why, why should we care about what other people think and feel? Um, it, why is it important? I think it's, it's so important actually that you said that just there because Empathy is a learned skill. You know, I think we all know people who are really compassionate and and helpful and and are naturally empathetic people. And so you might think that this is just kind of a trait that you have, this ability to understand someone's perspective and and validate them and try to only understand their experience, right? And dive dive into it. You might think that that is a trait that you're born with or not, but according to Brene Brown, empathy is a learned skill. And some people learned it in childhood because their parents were empathetic. Mm -hmm. Some people may have learned it as a coping mechanism to trauma. But many people didn't learn it. And it can be learned. We can learn to suspend that uh, instinct to think about our own perspective on a situation 
And I, I think there's a lot of social conditioning that is around, you know, what do you think about this? And can you prove that you think something smarter or better or like that sort of forces us to compete with people? Um, all of these, all of these things that I, you know, talk about in the book, like it's, it's all learnable, like empathy is learnable. And the more, you know, you, you practice them, the easier, uh, it comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, just to add to that, I think, um, like, I think my capacity for empathy increased after I had this trauma, depression, uh, life falling apart because of those things. And it, it, before, I think it was easy to be kind of proud and go, well, you know, people who have their life fall apart or people who have those kinds of problems or people who think this way and feel this way, they're just wrong or they're somehow uh, inferior or you know, whatever it might be. And, um, and I, I, I'm, I'm verbalizing these things because I see this in like hacker news every day. I see this on Reddit every day. I see this on Twitter every day. This is not, uh, you know, I'm not a perfect human being, but this is not just something that I feel. This is clearly a, a, uh, a commonly held belief. And it was, uh, going through that depression where I was so laid out that I felt like I couldn't get up if I, if I tried. And realizing in my head that a lot of the people I judged in the past, um, like I'm, I am, uh, and all of us are just a few life turns away from, uh, honestly, like being homeless or losing your job or, you know, all of these things that I think uh, it's easy for people to look down on. How we learn empathy is interesting or even our, our motivation to learn it because having gone through that now, I just feel like, ah, like we can't just um, always assume that everybody's like us. You know, we see elements of this in... Uh, you know, in our community, the difference between bootstrapping as a single something, single somebody in your 20s and bootstrapping uh, a product when you're in your 30s or 40s with kids. It's just very different. And uh, we don't always understand each other because we just assume that the way we see the world is the, the right way. And running undercurrent that, you know, you use the word judging people. Brene Brown would define that as shame. And there is so much shame wrapped up in all of what you just said about whether it's somebody launches something and you don't see the point of it. Saying something about that shames them. But why do we do that? Is it because when we did something as children that an adult in our lives disapproved of or didn't like or wasn't engaged with, they shamed us for that? So we have learned this shaming behavior or, you know, when we saw people lose their jobs when we were growing up in our community, was it blamed on them? Were they shamed for that? And in so many ways, empathy is the antidote to shame. And, and also seeing, you know, and, and, and still having empathy too for those people who are the ones who are roasting somebody's project. Very often there's a traumatized person underneath that who has been shamed themselves and they have not, they have not been able to heal and know the person who is receiving that doesn't deserve to receive, uh, you know, doesn't, doesn't deserve to have their show HN, you know, just totally mauled by someone, right? They don't yeah. deserve that. And that is valid. But then also mm-hmm. the other person, because, because you can't counteract fire with, you know, with more fire, right? I mean, well, I guess this, I mean, you know all about this. I guess you can do control burns <laughs> and whatnot. So I'm, maybe yeah. that's a bad analogy. Yeah. Um, yeah. But often know, more fuel 
more right. fuel Adding creates a bigger fuel fire. to the fire. Right. Yeah. No, it's it's understanding that that person is hurting too, but they have learned to hurt other people rather than being constructive and helpful and encouraging and empathetic for the other person. Yeah. Yeah. And while we're on this, I'm I'm curious because like I'm here for empathy. I've seen how it it's improved my relationships. I've seen how it's improved my parenting. I've seen how it's improved um, the way I relate to customers and the way uh, I under, seek to understand them. But what what is the role of um, genuine critique and the ability to cr- critique ideas, the ability to push back on people's claims, um, even like the scientific process itself, this vigorous vetting by scientists. You know, somebody proposes something, it goes through kind of a friendly round, and then often it gets, ex- afterwards it gets exposed to this really uh, critical pushback. And I, the, I, I don't know if I've quite figured out the balance between uh, being empathetic and seeking to understand someone, but at the same time being able to um, create an environment where ideas and claims and facts can be, um, you know, like, uh, for example, th- there's a great, uh, what's the, I don't know what the podcast is, but uh, he, he, this is on um, Farnham Street. He interviews a flat earther. And he talks about like his process for doing this. And I guess actually it's interesting because it's an interesting case study in empathy because like scientifically we know flat, <laughs> there is no flat earth. Like the earth is round. And, and so I could say that to somebody like, no, <laughs> no, you're wrong. The, the earth is not flat. It is round. And they could be hurt by that as well. Right. So what are the boundaries of, of all this, like, and especially if we use um, hurt as our primary rubric for kind of maneuvering through this, people get hurt by things all the time. Um, I've had consulting clients that were hurt by advice I gave them, uh, but it was actually the right advice. It was just uncomfortable. You know what I mean? So how do you how do you see the navigating all of these? The what are the walls and are, or what are the different vectors uh, for? how we deploy empathy and, you know, how it relates to other things like scientific critique or, you know, pushing back against truly bad or heinous ideas. So there's a couple of things in there. And I think I want to start with the last one. I'm reminded of a story from Adam Grant's new book, Think Again. Mm -hmm. And he talks about the concept of motivational interviewing, which was... I believe was developed in a medical setting to um, understand patients' uh, hesitancy around vaccines and treatment, courses of treatment, mm-hmm. to understand their hesitations and, you know, ultimately to try to get them to follow medical advice. But it comes from a place of empathy, of understanding that, because if you went to that person who thinks the earth is flat, if you just tell them the earth is round, that is so against their belief system that they're going to reject it immediately. So your path out of them thinking that way, if your goal is indeed to change their opinion, which it may not be like sometimes people develop these extremely radical ideas because they're isolated and without connection and they find community in these ideas. Um, and, and so, and they find a source of identity in that. Um, but you have to allow them a path out that is consistent with what they currently believe. And so the example that Adam Grant walks through in his book, you know, he, you know, saying, talking about, you know, uh, talking to a mother who, who hasn't gotten her kids vaccinated and, and starting it from the perspective of, you know, I can tell how much you care about your children. You're really trying to do research 
to understand what is the best thing for them and starting it from that perspective that how she is behaving and maybe not the decisions that those are leading to, but the what, what she is trying to do is valid. I mean, it's it's really complicated. And, and I think this sort of reminds me that being empathetic, first of all, it, it, it doesn't mean you're a pushover. It doesn't mean you, you know, everything your customers ask you for that you do it literally and exactly and before they ask for it, right? It doesn't mean that. Um, yeah. It like it very much does not mean that you discard all of your own judgments and opinions, right? Because if you go out and build something that's not financially sustainable for a company, then no, nobody gains in that scenario. Um, but in the context of the interview, you have to suspend that in order to pull out their experiences. Now, I don't know what uh, Shane Parrish, right, who runs Farnham Street? Mm-hmm. What his motivations of that interview were was probably clicks and listens and publicity. So that is sort of separate from motivational interviewing. Yeah. Although although his was actually, and I'm not sure if it's even him that did the interview because uh, he he's publishing it. But it is actually a, a great case study of what you just described of our intuition here is to come out guns blazing at this person push back aggressively on their ideas. And what was modeled instead was just lots of understanding. Like, tell me about how this all started for you. Like, you know, you obviously didn't wake up as the president of the Flat Earth Society. How how did you get here? And that alone set the stage. And it's actually, in some ways, almost a frustrating interview to listen to because it's not very entertaining. <laughs> because it's just it's just him in a just a slow, methodical way working its w- his way through these questions. And at the end, it's as an entertainment. It's not satisfying because he says basically this is just if I truly wanted to pursue this, this is just one of many conversations this individual would have to have to eventually um, make up their own mind, you know, in a different way. And that kind of goes to something you were saying earlier, which is you were asking, you know, what is the role of critique and debate in all of this? And you mentioned the scientific community. And I would emphasize community in that because I think you can have empathetic debate and critique, even when it is harsh and negates what someone has said, when it comes from a place of trust and a place of community and a place of reciprocity. Um, And I'm sort of reminded of Robert uh, Cialdini's work, uh, you know, who wrote Influence. And in his, the new edition of his book, he talks about the power of um, community and relationships and identity and all of that. And, you know, it's actually, it's actually something that I've been thinking about a lot this past year because, you know, we moved from, um, the Washington DC area to a rural community in Denmark, uh, last summer. And it's been so fascinating for me to observe the, like small town relationships and community and this, and then sort of also be reading about it, you know, at a like marketing psychology level um, around, you know, people trading favors for one another and the role of that and, and, and how, and how that all makes the community work. And I think Mm -hmm. it's important that you said it's community because, you know, if, if I say I have an idea for something and, and well, I, I wrote this book on interviewing people, so I would not go and say, hey, Justin, do you think this is a good idea? Because I know that that is a bad (laughs) question to ask. But hypothetically, let's say that I (laughs) decided to do that, right? Let's say I write like some blog post and you're like, Mm -hmm. you are talking out of your behind. This is terrible. Like, what are you, what are you saying here? I would receive that differently from you because like, I know you, there's been times probably maybe when I've critiqued something, there's times when you've elevated what I've said, you've cheered me on and vice versa. Like there's a relationship, there's trust there. Like I know that it's coming from a good place, 
But if somebody who, you know, and this happens on the internet, right? You said Hacker News and Twitter and Reddit and everywhere else. If these are people you don't know and they're tearing something down and then it's just a drive-by and then they're gone, mm-hmm. there's probably not a whole lot of, of of trust behind that. There's no There's no ongoing relationship there to fall back on. And they also don't know you as a person and they don't say, look, I can see that you care about this problem. I don't necessarily think the way you're solving it is is the way to go about it. Like, and I want to work with you and help you on that. Mm-hmm. Like those drive-by mean comments on Hacker News are not saying that. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought this up because it 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 proves that even though our tendency is to fight things out in the comments, um, fight things out in public on Twitter or start a you know, a, a comment war in Facebook. And I'm guilty of all these things. That's like my full-time job now. <laughs> um, but the the truth is, is that the actual, the, the DMs, uh, the other day I, I, I commented on somebody's post on Instagram. Afterwards, I was like, that, this guy doesn't know me. I'm just a drive-by internet jerk to him. Uh, and I DM'd him and we started a, a dialogue and the the dialogue is so much more empathetic. <laughs> it's just like it's me apologizing, saying, "Hey, you don't know me," and I just kind of burst into your Instagram comments, and uh, I'm sorry. I that I shouldn't have done that. Um, if if you're open to it, I'd I'd love to be able to communicate my ideas in a more human way. And then he responds, and then now we have a dialogue. Now we're seeking to understand each other. And, um, it's so much more, uh, fruitful than what I was trying to do before. There's probably still a place for, and I know this, none of the people are listening. They're like, get to the software stuff. But, uh, I, to me, this is all important because this is part of the culture we're contributing to. And I think there's still a place for, uh, publishing ideas publicly and getting even critiqued in public. Um, certainly every time you publish anything as an author, a blog post writer, a podcaster, you, you're gonna, you are going to invite some public critique. And sometimes some of that public critique is good. Um, but the, the flip side of that coin, and probably more true more often, is that we need more empathy <laughs> and, and more people uh, taking the time to seek to understand the other person's point of view, or at least where they're coming from. What is the fabric of life that this one thread that I'm pulling on is connected to in this person's life? So if I'm challenging my aunt on her political views, she lives in Ohio. uh, When I'm pulling on that thread, it's not just connected to uh, that one topic. It's connected to every facet of her life her church, her knitting group, her marriage, her relationships with her kids, her relationships in the community. And so what to me seems like an ideological exercise of let's explore this topic is actually much higher stakes for her. The, the, this, the, this topic is not just this topic. It is connected to every pillar in her life and to, to remove that all at once is just too much, you know. It, it takes um, some understanding of where people are truly coming from to truly understand the stakes in their lives uh, before we can really propose anything. That's kind, of the, that's kind of the thesis of your book, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't give advice on arguing, arguing with your aunt on Facebook, um, which... <laughs> Could that be you your know, next book? If there is a book on that, yeah, like... <laughs> How to argue with your aunt on Facebook. That is a That could be a bestseller. You know, I mean, I make, uh, I make ample use of uh, muting settings on social media. <laughs> so I... Uh, yeah, I, I decided not to engage with all of that about five years ago. You you know, so there's the thing about empathy is that it needs to be given and it needs to be Mm -hmm. received, right? Mm -hmm. Like if we are just giving empathy all the time, if you're having this conversation with your aunt 
and and you're saying, look, you know, I understand that everybody in your church community would disown you and your identity is tied up in this. And like, it's really personally and socially risky, risky for you to change your belief in this. So I understand why you are so entrenched in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, for, she may, first of all, sort of be offended that you kind of looked back from that perspective, um, as people sometimes are. But it can't just be going one direction. And this, you know, this goes for talking about controversial topics. It goes for, you know, asking your spouse about their day at work mm-hmm. uh, or at home, right? Like empathy needs to be given and it needs to be received. Um, I mean, this is where, I mean, therapy can be so amazing, right? Because a therapist's mm-hmm. job is to be empathetic with the patients and and yeah. to, to give that empathy, like... And I think, you know, if we're talking about problems in society, which, you know, in some ways it is so much, so much far beyond the the topic of how to interview customers in my book. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like it's not, you know, we, we all need to be receiving more empathy too. Yeah. I, this is, I mean, one of the reasons I loved your book is because to me, it wasn't just applicable to software business. But like I said, it was applicable to my relationship with my spouse, with my kids, with friends, with other family members, and with people in general. And uh, yeah, I do. It feels like we need more of this kind of conversation. Uh, I've said that I have a secret agenda with this book. Um, That, you know, nobody writes, be more empathetic on their daily to-do list. Yeah. But they do write, get more customers, write that landing page, sell more stuff, figure out why people cancel, right? Like all of that stuff is on your to-do list. Yeah. And you can use empathy to figure out why those problems are happening and talk mm-hmm. to your customers and understand them better. Mm-hmm. But in the course of that, become more empathetic yourself. And and it's not just me saying that. Steve Portigal, who is one of the most respected authors and consultants on interviewing uh, customers, says so himself in his own books, mm-hmm. that when you bring other people in the team into the interviewing process, they tend to become more empathetic themselves as well. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. in the course of doing these things, like making a landing page or stopping churn that you already need to do anyway, you can become a more empathetic person in the process. And that has sort of been my, uh, my, my sort of secret personal mission of the book. Yeah. It's great because, you know, uh, let's just be honest, like a, a, a male software developer may not pick up a book that's on, you know, discover your empathetic self. Um, but they might pick up a book called Deploy Empathy when it comes to building a software business, right? <laughs> so, so, and it's great because it is going, it has this resonant effect in people's lives when, when they start to experience this. One thing that I thought of as you were talking is when you said we have to be able to receive empathy too. So the example is, John and I are building the software company and we start from nothing and we were talking about it on the podcast every week. And we're being vulnerable about things, you know, as they're happening. And it created a space for listeners, but then eventually customers to deploy empathy to us. So in those first months when something broke or something wasn't quite right. Um, these folks who were tuned in to our journey understood where we were coming from. Maybe that's the key part. Hey, do you want to start your own podcast? Head over to Transistor and use my coupon, transistor.fm Justin. You'll get 15% off your first year of podcast hosting. Uh, they didn't have to interview us. We were speaking it out loud, but they were listening on the podcast mostly. And because they understood where we were coming from, they 
gave us so much more empathy, <laughs> like so much more uh, kindness and thoughtfulness and even suggesting ideas. And it was amazing. And when I get on those calls with those people, those customers, what I love about it is how even it feels. It's like, I know this person cares about me, actually. Like, I know that this customer cares about me because they've been with us from the beginning and they know our story. They know where we came from. They even know some personal things about, you know, our, our struggle. So then for me to be able to go to them and go, okay, so let's talk about what, what are you trying to accomplish here? Like, what, what's the background of what brought you here? And it, it feels more even. It's been a really kind of wonderful experience to have that, to not always be the, um, you know, uh, the, I'm the customer researcher and I'm deploying empathy, but it's, it's very one-sided. You know what I mean? Like, it's very like, I, you know, I'm the, I'm still the one initiating the call and I'm asking you the questions. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been nice to have that feeling of, no, this, this person is also empathetic towards me as a business owner. And uh, that dynamic really has been healthy. I have a question for you. I, I want to talk about that more, but I have a, a question. Did you listen to those podcast episodes as you published them? Uh, yeah. So I wonder if in the process of that, it also helped you be more empathetic with yourself and understanding when things weren't going well or why you made certain decisions because mm -hmm. we need to show empathy to others. We need to mm -hmm. receive it ourselves. And I mean, for so many reasons, you know, this journey was very much fueled by my own need to learn how to show empathy to myself. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if listening to yourself talk about those struggles and be vulnerable in the same way that it created so much uh, sort of buy-in and, 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 and shared experience and, and concern with your customers and audience. I wonder if you kind of joined that audience a little bit too. Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great point. My therapist does this with me all the time. I'm sorry if I'm crawling in your head too much. No, no, this is great. This is like, um, <laughs> I get fired up about this stuff. The, this is, that's such a great point because I've, exp I've, I've noticed that in therapy. Justin, what would you say to that younger version of yourself? Mm -hmm. It's such a great exercise. You know, they're right there in front of you. It's whoever, 12-year-old Justin, 19-year-old Justin, 25-year-old Justin. And what would you as 41-year-old Justin go back and say to that person? How would you listen to them? What would they be saying in return? Like, it's such an interesting exercise because it, it does give you this kind of disposition towards yourself to be, <laughs> to be more gentle. Like, oh man, I can see that, that little 19-year-old Justin and what's going through his head and what he believes and oh, wow, I just feel so much empathy towards them. And I've never, I, I've never actually thought about it in terms of the journaling, you know, with my blog and my podcast and my newsletter, but there is some of that element of being able to go back <laughs> and, and be empathetic to yourself, to not beat yourself up so much, to go, oh, I know where that person was at, you know, even if it was just six months ago or last week. 40-year-old Justin deserves gentleness too. Yes, Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's a really, really great point. And maybe uh, the, the, the advice for folks listening is to start journaling in some way. For me, <laughs> journaling out in public has always worked best. I can't write myself a private journal. I have like private journal-y things, but it's not very consistent. But writing and sharing and being appropriately vulnerable uh, has been very helpful for me. Um, yeah. How, how, are, how have you learned to be more empathetic towards yourself? I mean, therapy is a huge part of that, right? Therapy and then also doing the therapy homework, doing the work, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's a process. Everything is a process. 
And but I think that was really a turning point in my own life where I realized that not only did I need to be more gentle with myself, but that I deserved it. And it's interesting because these kind of these things sort of ran in parallel that I was learning about interviewing. I was learning about empathy in a professional context. And in some ways it was actually, it was easier for me to learn how to have empathy for customers than it was to have empathy for myself. That was a bigger struggle for me. Why is that? I think, you know, in a business setting, it's easier to uh, sort of separate yourself from what you're doing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's not you that's interviewing something, someone it's, you know, the business version of you. And so it, it doesn't really require any vulnerability on, on your part, but, you know, I mean, doing that kind of work that, that we do in therapy of understanding ourselves, of having compassion for that 19 or nine or, or whatever it is, version of ourselves, um, is harder it's just harder than hearing about, okay, so, so talk to me, you know, you know, what, what led you to create this invoice today? Um, <laughs> right. Like, it's just like, you know, it's, it's just harder. And, and so in some ways I think interviewing customers, if you want it to be, can kind of be an, an introduction in a very gentle way to understanding how to be more gentle and some people mm-hmm. may already be gentle with themselves and not need to learn this. And, and you know, there's actually, there's some several people have written to me saying how, you know, I learned in your book that I'm a natural empath and my problem is not learning how to use empathy. It's actually learning how to not have people walk all over me mm. and learning how to say no and mm-hmm. all of that. And so like there's this, mm-hmm. there's sort of, there's, you know, so many different perspectives that people can come at. I only, I come from one perspective um, yeah. on it. I think maybe it's why I I reference so many other books in the book. Like in some ways I want to be sort of a signpost to other places because it's sort of like, I only want to focus on the one specific topic that is not taught in other books that is largely confined to the user research community and written for that community and make it available to a wider audience and not speak to all these other things that I am not an expert in. I love this. I love everything we've been kind of cultivating in this in this chat so far. For that indie software developer or that small startup, why should they care about I think we've started to identify like why empathy is important, why we need to be empathetic towards ourselves and and others, why we need to be able to receive it. But in a business context, like how does it actually help how how does it help businesses attract new customers, build better products? What what is it about empathy that eventually delivers that result? I'm going to take this as an opportunity to ask you a question that I wanted to ask you a few minutes ago. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you mentioned that you talk to your customers at Transistor. Mm-hmm. And I know that you're a job speed on guy. I believe you're mentioned in Alan Clement's book, When Coffee and Kale Compete. What has interviewing customers and having empathy for your customers done for you and done for Transistor? Like to me, the, and I think I originally got this from Joanna Weeb, that idea of what brought you here today is so interesting to me because the, it kind of tells the story of what, what is going on. And so in Transistor, you know, some of those stories were, I just got laid off from my job and uh, I'm, I'm really uh, desperate for money and I think a podcast will help me make money. And that turns out to be not a great customer for Transistor, but it was still helpful for me to understand that person's perspective and um, fully kind of bake in it. And then identify those folks early and just say, be honest with them. Be able to be honest right from the get-go and say, you know, if, if you're really hoping to make money right away, I ended up writing blog, after a bunch of these interviews and phone calls, I ended up writing a blog post saying, um, you know, something like why, why you shouldn't start a podcast to make money. Uh, on the other hand, sometimes I, I 
do those interviews and someone would say, um, I just got fired from my job and I wanted to do something for myself. I've been thinking about this forever. I've always wanted to do this. I've always wanted to buy myself a microphone and chat with my friend or talk about Dungeons and Dragons or whatever. And fully baking in that, first of all, it just gets me fired up to serve those customers. And for me, so much of my strength in business is getting fired up by the people I'm talking to. So someone someone tells me they're starting a Dungeons and Dragons podcast because they just got fired and they just want to explore it with their friends. I'm like, I will do anything for them. I'll help them. I'll help them uh, style their website. I'll promote it on Twitter. I, like I'm just so uh, fired up for them because I understand the context. Uh, I think one thing for me personally is it's just it's given me energy. It gives me inspiration to want to work on stuff. It gives me uh, the motivation to go, oh man, I want to make this better for Jill. I want to make this better for Alan because uh, I've spoken to them. I've got their story in my head. And I think it would be different like for my co-founder. He's, <laughs> he's different than me uh, and, and certainly maybe not motivated by the same kind of uh, emotions or, or facts. But for me, that's been a big part of it is just once I hear somebody's story, it just makes me want to help them uh, on their project and what the project is seeking, what they're seeking for that project to do in their life. You know, it's like this right now is saving me from being depressed at home because I just got laid off. I'm like, I'm here for it. Like, let me help you however I can. And we actually have a lot of those, not, not people that have been laid off, but we have a lot of, our, most of our customers are prosumers. So they're, they are not professional broadcasters. Um, and then uh, the next biggest chunk is probably branded podcasts. So podcasts that people are doing for business or for their business. So that prosumer category, there's all sorts of things that motivate them um, to want to start a podcast and to keep doing it. And understanding it has been motivating for me to want to build the product better, to want to serve them better, all those kinds of things. Do you ever bring John in on the interviews? Sometimes. Um, sometimes I record them and have him watch them with, uh, with me after. I should bring him in on more. And actually now we have, and now we have Helen and Jason as well. So it feels like, um, you know, Helen and I are having lots of conversations with folks in isolation. The nice thing is that John is, and we're all on customer support live chat. And, uh, it's not as good as being on a phone call, but the immediacy of the responses, like, ask a question, get it back, ask a question, get it back. And sometimes you can get into this habit of like, you're trying to solve their technical problem. And then for us, live chat has enabled us to just step back a bit and go, oh, wait a second, hold on. Uh, what, what, are, what are you trying to do here? Like what, what's motivating this? Like, where's this coming from? I, I do think you could probably be on more calls for sure. When I was a product manager in a larger company, um, when we first started interviewing customers, initially it was just, you know, the product managers and our UX people. Mm -hmm. And after a while, we'd kind of get in this thing where we'd be like, oh, well, you know, we heard this in an interview, we're really into this. And then our developers uh, would kind of be like, yeah, okay, okay, like you heard this, like, okay, sure, like it's important. Mm -hmm. And then we started bringing them in on the interviews. Just as mm. silent participants in the room, like, you know, it was still just two people asking questions because you, you really shouldn't have more. Otherwise, someone can feel, uh, you know, sort of yeah. banged up on and it's just yeah. a little weird. Um, but so, you know, still having the two person interviewing team, but having them just sitting in the corner, no laptops, no notes, just listening. Mm -hmm. We noticed what happened was and even even if they were just coming in for like one of these a week. Mm -hmm. everyone was so fired up and motivated for what we were doing. And then we would be putting those stories on the board and whatnot. And we didn't have to go through the whole, okay, here's why we need to do this. This is this thing. Here's this data, like, you know, all this going on. We could be like, here's a story. Here's the data. Like, 
you know, and then people are like, oh, yeah, like we heard that from Jill last week. And we're like, yep, exactly. OK, good. Go like next thing. Like the team velocity and motivation and engagement, like just took off like gangbusters because mm-hmm. everybody was on the same page. And it wasn't like, here's these, you know, okay, here are the people with the information giving us the information. And they're, we're supposed to just believe that like people want this and that this is important for the business and that this is like, we should take these people seriously. It went from like, yeah. oh no, okay. Like we've, you know, we've got this data, we've got this research, but also like, yeah, like I can grok it because yeah, like okay, Jill had that problem. And then like, what are we working on next? Like, oh yeah, like, but what about thing, that thing we heard from the other guy? Like we heard that from five other people. Like, aren't we going to work on that soon? Like it's just, everybody was so much more engaged and it's part of why interviewing was like, it was such a revelation for me as, as a product manager. Cause you know, I didn't have to just sort of look at data and just guess what I needed to do to make numbers move. Even if my guesses were taking the form of AB tests, like I was still guessing what should go into those, right? Mm-hmm. Like I could be like, wait, no, I understand what was causing people to bounce off of that page. Like they didn't, they didn't know what was going to happen next. They didn't feel like they had this information they needed. Like I've heard it from them. I've heard them say they bounced because they were going back to this page six pages ago. Like, and now that I have that, and then now the team has that too, then we're all like working together more and we're collaborating. And whether it's just whether you're just one person who is staring at analytics, trying to get more people to buy, or you're a team of two people like us, or you're more than that, mm-hmm. like it's just so good for like alignment and that context that you just can't get from just looking at the numbers or just looking at a story on a board. Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I, I was actually listening to your book today while I walked to the office. Because uh, you just dropped new chapters today, right? In the audiobook? Yeah. I'm doing like, so I did the newsletter as the rough draft for the book. So I decided I would do the same thing for the audiobook. So I have a private podcast going and I'm dropping a couple chapters a week. Yeah, it's so great. I For me, like being able to consume books via audio is just helpful. And uh, actually, my Audible account is a is terrible. I, it has a huge backlog, but my podcast listening app, I'm already in motion of, you know, every day I wake up, see what new episodes are there, and then decide what I'm going to listen to you on the way down to the office. But I was listening to you today. You, you were speaking. I'm like, oh my God, I got to do some more customer interviews. I haven't done customer interviews forever. And we're working on this, this new dynamic audio insertion product, dynamic ad insertion product and uh, feature, sorry. And my thought was, I've got to get on a Zoom call with some customers right away. But what I didn't think was I should include Jason and John in those calls. <laughs> I was just like, no, I got to do this right away. But you're right. Like the, for, for them to get the full everything and then to be able to, I mean, yeah, it, when appropriate, also ask questions or maybe just lead their own interviews. Uh, like me, give them a list of folks that they can talk to and them being able to go and do it as well. That could be very helpful. <laughs> that that's like something that we haven't done a lot. Yeah, dude, get everybody involved. And you know, one one of the like most fun uh, parts about the book was interviewing uh, Theodora too, who is a product manager at Stripe, mm. and sort of weaving stories from Stripe throughout the book. And yeah. that's something Stripe does. They get everybody involved. This is actually why I ended up interviewing her because she and her team have interviewed me multiple times. I have been interviewed by developers at Stripe and I was so blown away when I saw that they did that. You know, and and people have this kind of like, there's this stereotype that like developers can't talk to people, which, and, and the, or that they don't understand people, which like, first of all, like research on user research from 1993 shows that a team of developers was actually more able to pull customer needs out of a usability session than a research expert was. Hmm. Like, so they are able to talk to people. If you're a developer, please believe me, you can talk to people too. You can do this. Yeah. And and maybe, why do you think that is? Do, do you have any theories uh, as to why they were better? I wonder if it's the curiosity factor. They're often curious. I don't know. I mean, so so this specific study was one of the, it is sort of like the voice of the customer study. It's literally called Voice of the Customer from 1993. 
mm-hmm. and they had done the usability sessions already. So, so they weren't they weren't talking to people themselves, but mm-hmm. they were analyzing the interviews afterwards. Mm. And it was, they, they had all these different types of teams. They had a single research expert. They had a group of university students. They had like all these different ones. And one of them were, were teams of engineers mm-hmm. and who, who worked on the product in question. And those teams of engineers were able to pull out more insights than the research expert like me. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's also, I mean, I think it's just... A, like it's a really harmful stereotype that like developers are not social like people like and maybe it's because you know like both of my parents are software engineers I'm married to one and like I I don't see it personally in my own life um but the data also backs it up and also and if that's not enough Stripe also is a living proof that you can be a hugely successful company and listen to your customers and have the whole team involved in the process. And actually a lot of where that came from was Patrick and John Collison from the very beginning talking to developers and seeing, hey, like, what are you, what are you guys doing? Like, like what's going on? Like, why, why isn't this working? Exactly what you said about doing the live chat and trying mm-hmm. to understand what the frustrations were and building empathy for the customer that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is great. I think everybody should get the book. In fact, actually, if this is if this conversation has motivated you to get the book, I would love to know. And I would love to know um, what was it that you heard that said, I got to get this book. Um, the book itself has tons of practical, like, email templates and other things. Is there anything else you want to tell people about the book itself that we haven't kind of alluded to yet? So the idea of the book is to be a practical guide to interviewing customers. So, uh, and and that's for across the entire lifespan of a company, whether that's from when you're trying to figure out what to build to when you've already built something and you want to know why people buy it so you can get more people to do that to mm-hmm. when you've maybe building something new, like this audio insertion feature and, be, and you're testing it out and be like, can people actually use the thing we built mm-hmm. uh, to figuring out why people canceled? So um, all of these sort of different phases of a company's life. But the, the idea is that it's sort of grab and go. Like you can sort of read the chapter on how to talk to people, learn these empathy um, skills in a conversation um, and then grab the relevant script for it. There's also re- recruitment templates and whatnot. You know, something a reader pointed out to me earlier today that they thought differentiated the book from a lot of books was that I am a practitioner of this. You know, mm-hmm. I co-run a SAS myself. And so this comes out of my own research and my own background in product and research, but mm-hmm. also very much out of my own experiences as someone who runs this. Mm-hmm. I am not a consultant. I am not selling research consulting. Mm-hmm. Most of the books out there are written by people who are selling research consulting, which yeah. I respect the hustle. Like, yeah. like I love their books. Yeah. Um, their incentives are different than mine. Yeah. I, if I, I wrote this book because other founders were asking me how to talk to their customers because they've seen the results we've gotten from it. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to put as much in it as possible to make it as easy for people to get going on their own without talking to me because I already have a job. I yeah. I actively don't want anyone to hire me to do this for them. Yeah, yeah. So everything on this to get started is in the book. Yeah. Yeah, and the I I really loved um it's 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 been one of the you know some of these other books even like some of the jobs to be done books that you and I might like like Clayton Christensen's book it's it's written um as you point out in your book it's written for executives it's written for these big companies and sometimes i'm like this their examples don't resonate with me at all like this yeah. is not or and even uh, you know one of the, the frustrating things about um 
competing against luck is there's just no real practical, like, here's how to get started. Here's some things you should try. Here's like a, a phone script. Here's what to do if you don't know anybody yet. Like if you don't have customers and uh, it feels like your book addresses all of that, those things. Like, okay, don't have any customers yet? Well, here's what you can try. You do have customers. Okay, well, here's what you can try. Here's the email script or whatever. So I really appreciated the way that you wrote it and the fact that it's for people like us, you know, for companies of one, for small companies, for small, calm companies, for people who want to create their own indie software company. Uh, This is kind of like one of those must-reads, I think, in that category of whatever, indie software developer, indie software entrepreneur. It, It really is wonderful. Uh, especially compared to some of these really uh, theoretical books that we might get at uh, Barnes and Noble or whatever. I mean, I think there's a space for those other books. Like, I don't know if you listened to it in the in the chapter you said, but like, you know, Clayton Christensen's books. I I love his work, and yeah, I agree. So yeah. good for the high level. And like, if you're you know, if you're in a bigger company and you you want to get your leadership on board with interviewing customers. Have them read a Clayton Christensen book, make them think it's their idea, and then you can run with some of the other books. Um, you know, even ones like the Job Speed on Playbook, which I love, which actually has some has some scripts in it and has some of these things. There's a lot of built-in assumptions around resources mm-hmm. and 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 also on background knowledge too, that are I just didn't feel like I, like I, I found myself just writing up like long emails of like resources for people. And it's like, there's like chapters from this book and like the middle third of this book. And then here's this blog post and like, here's this podcast. And it was like so jumbled. Cause I'd be like, cause like this book is written for executives. So like read this part, but then this book is written for product managers. But I think this particular chapter is at the right level here. And it was like, there was nothing that was like, like there's the mom test, which is amazing for when you want to figure out if an idea is good. Mm-hmm. But then there's other phases beyond that. And so in so many ways, I think of my book as like sort of the 201 level of the mom test, where yeah. it's like, it's people who are already bought in on the concept. Like if you think talking to customers is a waste of time, my book is not for you. Like it's 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 for people who already get that like you can have these amazing light bulb moments from talking to customers, but mm-hmm. you just need, you, you need more to be able to like, jump into those sessions when you're already doing a million other things. Like you don't have the time to workshop your own scripts and whatnot with your team. Cause you don't have a team. Uh, or if you're even in your big company and you're going rogue and doing it yourself, which like, you know, you're my people. Like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was thinking that exact thing that it would be a great companion to the mom test. If you've already read the mom test, uh, it's kind of like, yeah, you're right, like the next level up from the mom test. Um, yeah, I it's a wonderful book. I think everyone should get it. I think if you're listening right now, you should go and buy it. What's the best place for people to get it? Do you want people to be buying it on Amazon or you prefer for them to buy it from you directly? Where should they go? So they can go to deployempathy.com. So currently you can only buy the paper book from Amazon. I do want to make it available for, um, you know, booksellers and, and whatnot. Um, still working on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but so for right now, if you want the paper rack, you can buy it from Amazon. You can also get a Kindle version from Amazon. Um, you can also buy a PDF and script template bundle. Um, so basically that's, you know, all of the scripts and phrases and templates and everything in an easy to copy, um, notion, um, toolkit and also in Google drive. So you can just make copies of those and, and cause they're all intended to be built on. Like I don't present any of this as the sort of like, these are the only questions you would ever never <laughs> need to ask. Right. Like it's all like, this is, you should build on this and customize it. And this is just to get you started. So you can buy, there's a PDF and, um, templates bundle as well. And then there is also the audiobook pre-sale where you can get access to the private podcast. Um, and so that's, that's only on its, you know, second week at this point. And so I'll just be dropping groups of chapters. And initially I was like, I'm going to do one chapter at a time, but some of them are really short. And so then the episode would have been like a minute and a half. 
And also there's like 50 something chapters. And so it would have taken a whole year (laughs) to get through them. And I was like, that's a little bit long. So I'm instead, I'm going to try to make them like podcast length now. So they're like 15 to 25. Yeah. That was perfect. Minutes that like that sort of like walk your dog, drive to the grocery store, like kind of length. I love that you did that because for my book, when I've done, when I did that, I just did chapters, but some of them were two minutes. And I saw today that you had multiple chapters in one episode. And I was like, this is perfect. I have the ebook version and the audiobook version. They're both wonderful. My guess is you make more money if people buy the ebook version. So I'm going to recommend people do that <laughs> and get the private podcast because I do think it's such a great way for indie authors to um, release their audiobook is by doing these private podcasts instead of having to go through Audible. So I would, yeah, go to deployempathy.com. Michelle, uh, I think this is actually the second time we've done an interview together. But I'll have to have you come back because we 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 cruised through an hour and didn't even feel like it. So no, I, no, no. I would I'd love to have you come back and um, we'll start where we left off and talk more about these practical ways people can incorporate customer interviews into you know their company. Does that sound good to you? Yeah, I mean I feel like there's so much more to that story that I mean so many questions I have now about how you have integrated customer feedback into Transistor because from the outside, it looks like customers have been a part of this journey from the very beginning. And and I think that's the way to do it if you can, because retrofitting customer research into an organization that's been around for a long time is possible, but it can be quite difficult. But if you're a company like Transistor, like Stripe, where the customers are part of it, from the beginning, then you never have to retrofit it. And it's and it's always part of the company that's like, oh, we don't know what to do. Should we do this? Should we do that? Like, you know what? Let's go talk to some customers. Let's understand how they're like, why they're doing this in the first place and what they're trying to do. And like, like that, that just becomes the instinct of the company. Yeah. Love it. I would love to do that. Let's, let's plan on it again. So I, I'm, I'm a bit of a hard person to connect with sometimes and <laughs> to get a calendar <laughs> event booked up. Thanks again, Michelle. And again, folks, if you are listening, please go to deployempathy.com, buy the book, and then let me know. You can tweet me on Twitter, M-I, Justin, that's the letter M, the letter I, Justin, or build your sass is the tweet handle. Michelle, are you Michelle Hansen on Twitter? MJW Hansen, and that's Hansen with an E-N. With an E-N. So yeah, I'll have those all in the show notes. Go buy the book, and we will see you next time we do an episode. Bye. Podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm Justin and get 15% off your first year.